1: Hi, I'm Emma McMillan and welcome to this episode of LawPod. This episode will discuss the case for legal protection of the Irish language. The Irish language has of course been in the political spotlight since the collapse of the Northern Irish Assembly in January 2017 and has been deemed as a red line issue. As the indigenous language of the island, many are calling for legislation which would guarantee that Irish is given the same official status as English in Northern Ireland. Our guest speaker today is Kieran McGillivane, who recently hosted an informed seminar in Queen's Law School on the case for legal protection of the Irish language. Kieran is an advocacy manager with Conwina Gilga, the main Irish language Organisation on the island of Ireland. It's great to have you in the studio, Karen. Uh, uh, thanks for joining us. Um, do you just want to let us know a little bit about yourself?
0: Um uh, I'm, I'm very happy to be here back in my old uh, university. Um, I studied ARIES here at Queen's before that. I had uh, attended Manschool first year uh, on the Falls Road there, and where the Calderon is now located. Now uh, the cultural Act was actually located in it at that time. Also, uh, we shared <laughs> we shared our uh, geography room with a, a, a cafe in there and a and a bookstore. Uh, and then before that, I was in Bonshaw, football first job on the Shaw's Road. I'm a native of this city, uh, the west of the city. Um, I, I was educated entirely through the medium of Irish, um, and then I studied um, Irish and history at Queen's here, and went on to do an MA in Irish also at Queen's.
1: Lovely. So just getting into the, the issue of the Irish Language Act, you know, some people believe that the Irish Language the Irish Language Act is being used to fuel a sort of culture war here in, in Northern Ireland. But of course, uh, the language has a rich, a rich history and this isn't the first act for the Irish language on the island. Um, was the attitude towards the Irish language as controversial, say, 100 years ago as it is now?
0: Yeah, I, you know, I, I often think when the debate has been raising for the past maybe 18 months or so, uh, if not longer, because I suppose it's never been too far away from the spotlight, but it has been particularly intense in terms of the debate over the past 18 months. I often think when I hear those that are opposed to um, legislation for, for the language, when they refer to um, one of the reasons for that opposition being around the politicization of the language or the weaponization of the language, I often think that they display very little or no historical understanding of what actually took place mm. here, because what we have, we, we have had legislation in relation to the Irish language, over the centuries, but all of that legislation has been designed to destroy the language and to eradicate it. What we are seeking now is for the first time uh, in this state that we would have actually positive legislation, something that would be um, there to protect the language and to, if you like, set out the legal parameters. That would allow people to engage with the language in whatever way they should choose to. And if they don't choose to, then that's entirely up to themselves. But I think in exploring that history, um, that is perhaps where a lot of that opposition is rooted. The Irish language was the chief um, cultural target of, of colonization of the island of Ireland and come back to the statutes of Kilcanny, which essentially declared amongst other things that anyone who was overheard speaking Irish would be immediately stripped of their lands. If you fast forward to the penal laws in the 17th century, similar measures were legislated to prevent, um, prevent the, the spread of the Irish language, prevent the usage in any civil, domestic or social lives. Then you had the national schools which banned um, Irish from being taught. Moving forward to the 20th century, it was illegal um, to uh, have Irish language signs. in the early 20th century across the island of Ireland. And then after partition here, we've also had things like the Special Powers Act, the Flags and Emblems Act, the Public, S- and, uh, Public Health Act, which forbade um, Irish language signs on, on streets and stuff. So we have had a very long and tortuous mm-hmm. uh history of legislation in relation to the language. I suppose our argument would be that all that legislation, as I said earlier, has been designed to eradicate what we are seeking now, in line with common best practice across Europe and around the globe, is that we actually start for the first time to put legal legal provisions in place that would be actually beneficial to the language to try Mm -hmm. something new.
1: So, and just fast forward into now then, what legal status does the Irish language currently hold in Northern Ireland?
0: Well, the Irish language enjoyed zero um, official or semi official recognition up until the Good Friday Agreement. And as a result of, I um, suppose, a, a burgeoning Irish language revival, which was firmly rooted in the education system, that for the first time um, there were a number of commitments, albeit vague in nature, around protecting the Irish language, um, developing the Irish language. Importantly, um, what was also put in place there was a statutory duty um, around education. Um, a statutory duty, which, which placed a duty on the Department of Education to uh, promote and facilitate the development of Irish-medium education. Now, interestingly, from a legal perspective, again, that is has been quite open to interpretation and has been subject to a number of um, judicial reviews from Irish schools when it has been sought when it has been uh, I feel like inferred that the Department haven't been reading. Um, that interpretation in the spirit of the agreement. And this is something that not only applies to the DUP, but there's also mm-hmm. judicial reviews taken against Sinn um, Fein ministers when they were also in charge of education. And one of the most significant rulings we've had was from Justice Tracy. Um, around transport provision for college. to so first year, when he ruled that um, the, that statutory duty was to have practical implications and wasn't merely aspirational. Mm. And on the basis of that ruling, the Irish media education sector has been allowed to leverage additional support through the courts. However, every single element of that has been has not been without faith, particularly um, from May 2016, when for the first time, um, since power sharing was restored here, um, the DUP uh, took over the Ministry of Education, which saw a serious onslaught on Irish medium education. but just to go back, so we had the, the education provisions, we also had the general vague commitments around the Irish language, and importantly from an investment point of view, uh, Forest Nagilliga became an all-island body, so previously previously had Bord Nagilliga, which was providing strategic investment to develop the Irish language community sector um, in the south. This was then extended and became one of the all-island organisations along with the Tourist Board and the Waterways Agency and everything else. Um, in terms of rights, however, there was nothing in there that was concrete. The British government also did, um, as a result of Good Friday, ratify the European Charter on Regional Minority Languages in the year 2000. Um, And then, obviously, from that in 2006, and as a result of of concerted pressure leading up to that point, they also then committed to, in very clear and unambiguous language, they committed to introducing an Irish Language Act based on the experiences of of Wales and the Republic of Ireland. And again, that is now something that we have been waiting for, for for touching 12 years now.
1: Just touching upon that, um, obviously, then a lot of arguments around the fact that there's apparent there's apparent confusion about what was agreed in the Good Friday Agreement and perhaps in, in the St Andrews Agreement of 2006 um, in relation to Irish language protection. Um, you know, w- what actually is your understanding of the legal protection that was promised um, in light of what you've just said? Well,
0: I think it's very clear. Um, we had an international agreement um, which was the Good Friday agreement we also had a subsequent international agreement which was ratified by both the British and Irish governments and endorsed by the parties in the form of an election um, after that agreement was was signed off and which very clearly in, in, in black and white the British government themselves committed to introducing an Irish language act given the history um, of minority language um, like evolution and protection of that in, in the British Isles. The British government, there is a precedent there. They introduced the first Welsh Language Act, for example. They introduced the provisions around BBC Alba and and protections for Gaelic in Scotland. So I think um, it was, if you you like, assumed at that point that this would be um, pretty straightforward, that, Mm -hmm. that there was an act here, I remember at the time very clearly, um, I was involved in the campaigns on organizing some marches at that time, which resulted in this provision being put in place. And I remember that people were very optimistic and, and, and told that it was resolved. Uh, then following that, obviously, um, DUP took over the Ministry um, for Culture, Arts and Leisure, which was, which was then tasked with bringing this forward. They carried out a consultation, a public consultation, which was engaged with very healthily. Uh, the majority of provisions come back, and majority of submissions come back, sorry, um, strongly in favour of legislation. And the minister at the time, um, our good friend Edwin Pouch, decided uh, not to proceed in the interests of what he called, I think at the time, community relations. Um, so you have something that was a very central element, I would argue, to the peace process, because obviously the Good Friday Agreement, and the spirit of the Good Friday Agreement was in the in the purest sense, around bringing those groups that have been marginalised, that have been left behind. It was about bringing those in from the cold. It was to herald, herald a new year of equality. And given the, the brief history that I ran through at the, the beginning of this interview in terms of the systematic marginalisation of the Irish-speaking community and, and the impact that that have, that is what made the Irish language a minoritised language. It wasn't because the English language is more practical or its grammar is structured uh, more easier for people to, to understand. You know, it mirrors the power relations on this island. British British government took over Ireland and put its language and replaced mm-hmm. the Irish language with the English language in a very systematic and calculated way. So with the peace process and the emerging peace process and better understanding between the peoples of all these islands, it was assumed that the language would then be, you know, would reap some of these benefits and would be rewarded um, with the provisions that were, that were uh, already in place at that time for speakers of Welsh and Wales and for speakers of Gaelic. in in Scotland and indeed uh, for speakers of Irish and the rest of this Mm -hmm. island. However, uh, as I said, we um, are now been waiting 12 years and in, in that period we've had very clear and consistent demands from bodies such as the United Nations, the Council of Europe, uh, and other international oversight bodies, which have consistently called out the British government on their failure to adopt this. The British government, for their part, have often said that this is something um, that relates to Stormont, that uh, under the soil convention, which implies that the Westminster can't interfere directly in the domestic affairs of the default parliaments, that there is an understanding in place that they would not do this. However, we know that there's precedents in which they have done that. Um, in 2009, for example, the EU Directive on Gender Equality, um, the then First Minister, um, the Reverend Ian Paisley, refused to send based on his religious beliefs. He couldn't sign the directive. The Stormont were going to be levied, uh, but the British government were going to be levied, sorry, with around 50 million per week. For every week they refused to sign this and the British government immediately signed it. So they went over the heads of Stormont at that time. They were happy to do it. And again, if you're if you back to 2015, the day of the fresh start agreements, when Theresa Villiers was saying very clear language that unless there was an agreement around austerity, that the British government would introduce the austerity measures that they felt were necessary. So they we have precedent when it's in their interests mm-hmm. that they can overrule um, Stormont and they can interfere in domestic affairs of Stormont. However, in the case of the Irish language, in which they themselves have committed to in a very clear international agreement, they have refused blatantly to do this. We are now in a very curious situation where we have no storming. We have had de facto direct rule, although they refuse to call it that. And I think um, given that's been complicated further by the uh, confidence supply deal, which is in place between the Tories and the DUP, um, which even if there was will on the part of the Tory party to bring this about, um, probably makes it more difficult. So we're in a bit of a conundrum um, currently, but for us, uh, just to go back um, to your original question, this was very, very clear. Um, I think anyone reading it, you do not have to be um, a legal mastermind to be able to read a document. It wasn't a very long document, the St Andrew's Agreement. The provisions around the Irish language were at the end, but it doesn't really matter if they were in the start, middle or end. They were contained within the document. And they were signed off on and ratified by two governments. I mean, one of the examples that we would like to give is if, could you imagine some of the other provisions that were agreed in St. Andrews that still hadn't been implemented, the provisions around, I don't know, decommissioning, for instance, or policing and justice, mm. or some of those other cornerstones. So for for obviously for they would have a wider impact on society for, for people speaking the Irish language, they are just as important. We we were made a commitment, we were given a promise. And that has not been a day or two. We have had in that period three public consultations um, on this. Every one of them have demonstrated widespread public support. The previous consultation had upwards of 13,000 respondents. Now, I, again, I haven't looked into this in any great detail, but I would struggle to believe that any consultation has been engaged with as widely. Um, and 95% of those that responded agreed to have this um, forward. So... You know, I think it's clear. We have clear public support, I would argue. We have clear Mm -hmm. international support. We have an international agreement. One thing we don't have is implementation.
1: Yeah. So um, you did, you touched on education there. Um, Obviously, the Council of Europe um, advocates for linguistic diversity. um, And they actually say that it it is an expression of of identity. Would you say um, the lack of implementation of this act, you know, Touches on the core identity of Irish language speakers and, and perhaps maybe just strips strips them of of this identity that they that they have and and what they want.
0: Yeah, I, I, very much so. And again, that's in keeping with um, how our, you know this will be viewed from a European or, or global way. One of the leading experts that the Council of Europe have employed to engage on these these matters, um, a guy called um, Fernand de Ferrance he argues that, that the right to use and speak your own language flows from a fundamental right and isn't a special concession or privilege. Mm-hmm. It's a fundamental right. And, and if that is denied, particularly in the context where your native indigenous language, as you rightly described it, I'm at the very beginning of the interview, has been deliberately marginalised, we, we, mm-hmm. we know what happened here, and I think don't think anyone um, can deny in, in relation to the language. We're willing, you know, I, I don't want to be kind of, if you like, handcuffed to that history. In spite mm-hmm. of all that... We have one of the oldest languages in Europe, um, which has survived, which is still in modern day, everyday usage. This is a language that predates the pyramids. This is something that has enormous cultural wealth to all of us that happen to reside in this part of the world. And it has survived political, social and cultural turmoil of the last 300 years, if not longer. And it is now, in, in spite of all that, it is now flourishing. And it is flourishing to a large extent If we're being completely objective and honest about this. It is, in, it is flourishing in spite of the state and not because of the state. Mm-hmm. And what we are asking now is that the state finally begin to remove these obstacles. We genuinely believe um, people like myself that have been involved in campaigning and that have spoke to, many different rooms about this issue and many different people from various backgrounds. We firmly believe that the Irish language offers a real deep and meaningful kind of path for us in terms of this process of reconciliation that our society still has to undergo. Language is abstract. It belongs to absolutely nobody. People who mm-hmm. live here, it doesn't matter if they live in Chantal or in the Shankel uh, Everyone has an equal, if you like, grabs of this language and it is heavily influenced Uh, The world around us, it shaped the world around us, it is, uh, you know, our place names, our surnames, the way we speak English, have all been heavily influenced by this language that has been spoken unbroken on this island for over 3,000 years. So we have a choice, and the choice is to we try and keep it on life support and where it may go into the extinct mode very easily. Or do we actually do something about it or do we give it the proper uh, tools that are needed that are afforded to other languages, not only across Europe, but other languages within this jurisdiction and that have been proven to help and support and have been proven also, importantly, in, in, in our own particular political circumstances, have been proven to uh, to encourage tolerance and understanding. If the language is confined to those districts, to those people who view it as an intrinsic part of their Irish identity, then, you know, it, it, it will never kind of have that role in terms of reconciliation that many others think. You know, the, the work that's being um, done by the, the likes of Linda and in the Scano Centre in East Belfast has been transformational. It has mm-hmm. proven that, uh, you know, people with different perspectives on the constitutional quest and different perspectives on identity and who they are can also have an equal say. And the reasons that Linda Irvine and the others um, from the, maybe the unionist community of People Fast are learning the Irish language are just as valid as the reasons that people on the Falls Road who feel it is a part of their Irish identity learn the Irish language. Ultimately, reasons aren't really important. What's important is that people learn the language mm-hmm. and that we can speak with each other and that we can communicate and that we're keeping this language alive for the next generation.
1: Yeah, Um. Just in light of all that, what kind of Irish Language Act does, is Cony advocating for? Is, is it going to be along the lines of the, the Welsh Act or the, the, the Scottish Act or, you know, because of the unique circumstances of the language here, are, are you seeking to have a bespoke legislation that would, you know, move away from, from that legislation over in uh, Scotland and Wales?
0: Yeah, well, uh, that's an, an excellent question and I suppose um, it's been kind of, Almost missing from the debate, we've, we've had a lot of noise around um, the Irish language, but not too much nitty gritty debate in terms of what it actually may look like. Um, and any real meaningful meaningful sense anyway, I, I would argue. So in terms of our provisions, what we looked at in the starting black was what was stated. Our, our entire campaign has been underpinned by that commitment that was given at St Andrews. So if you look at that, it talks about being uh, reflecting the experiences of Wales and the Republic of Ireland. So what we did, we looked at what was in place there. We were also mindful of two things. Obviously, in, in the case of Wales and in the case of the South, they are much further down the line. So we don't think it would be practical um, or even expedient at this point to say, OK, well, where is Wales right now? That's where we want to be. Mm-hmm. Because Wales have went through a process. They're now on their fourth or their fifth language act. What they do is they review and strengthen as times go by, as demographics change, as different trends emerge and different things subside. They kind of try and reflect that and change their legislation. So for us to immediately jump up to the point where they are, I don't think it would be practical or beneficial to your speakers and never mind the rest of society. So what we what we try to look at was um, something that would be cost effective also, because obviously we're living in. Difficult financial circumstances and anything that, um, you know, would be a drain on public resources, um, you know, wouldn't get the necessary support. And what we're we're hopeful of is that legislation, um, if it does nothing else, would engender more support and tolerance of the language. So you want to get off on that positive step. We looked at what the core elements of any legislation would look like. And if you look, it doesn't matter where you are in the world, if you look at any legislation, you see pretty much the same trends emerging. You need to have official status. That needs to be in law. Currently, the Irish, Irish language does not exist in law. We we have taken a number of cases to this effect um, to Belfast High Court, for example, around street saints. and we have kind of used the argument around the European Charter as an instrument and, and different things. And although that is a an international treaty ratified by the British government, it isn't actually enforceable in domestic law, um, which means then that it's pretty useless when it comes mm-hmm. to you know rights that can't be actually used aren't rates really at all? Mm-hmm. You know, if you can't actually use these rates in any practical sense, then they don't exist in law. So um, we need to have that official status. We also need to have services. Now, when we argue services, uh, we wouldn't argue for the provision of absolutely every service that's currently available in English through the medium of Irish. We would argue that a, that this would be kind of designed to meet the specific needs of the irish speaking community. So to give you an example, we have a very young community. We have an EA, an education authority, which is tasked with developing educational services for those young people. Currently in Irish medium schools, our educational psychologists are sent out to those schools that don't speak Irish we have a number of additional services that are provided to those schools all through the medium of English. Now, this sector has been going since the early 70s. It's grown. It's expected to double in the next seven years, at least, conservative estimates. It's the fastest growing sector we have. Mm. Yet there is no plan in place that delivers services to these young people in the language of the choice. The reason there's no plan is because we have no law instructing the EA that they have to do this. So we need to have the delivery of services through the medium of Irish and that to be kind of directed at where they're, they're most needed. We also um, need to have a commissioner because obviously the issue, you cannot separate the language from the politics and particularly the party politics about Stormont. And what we would argue is instead of you having one minister who's generally supportive of the language, making generally positive moves for the language and another minister in charge of another department that would have the opposite view and trying to then unravel the previous ministers' uh, projects that they've built up—that's no way to go about reviving a language. That's no go, no way to go about actually planning for the protection and development of a language. So we need to have somebody who's completely neutral, an arbiter who looks at the legislation, designs how it's going to be implemented, would put, um, if you like, uh, the various state bodies into categories. So again, when we're talking about services there would be additional requirements on the Education Authority in comparison to Waterways Agency. For example, Waterways Agency don't really deal with the public that much. Therefore, it would be wrong and foolish to put the same obligations on them as, as the EA. So, for instance, the Language Commissioner would be tasked with kind of identifying those those departments and stuff. Um, so, Commissioner will be incredibly important and particularly, again, given our, our unique circumstances. But again, this is something that's very common. And finally, and again, probably one of the more controversial elements, we need to have visibility of the language. Mm-hmm. The days of the language being unseen and unheard here need to surely be over. Our, our place names, our towns, if you travel through Belfast, Belfast is one of the richest um, in terms of the Irish language. Towns or cities we have anywhere in Ireland, all their place names are steeped and a very rich. And I would argue untapped history. Yet if you were to arrive from Japan or America or Africa tomorrow... Kenya, tomorrow, you wouldn't be aware that the Irish language existed. You wouldn't know that it was there, because there is nothing to tell you that a language existed here for 3,000 years. So we need to have that up on stage. We need to have that particularly in shared spaces, um, particularly on, on minoritarial loads. It will have two purposes for those who speak the language. Again, it's it's this is something that has been endorsed um, and stated consistently by, by linguistic experts. You know, if a young person is being taught through a minority language as a second language user, then that seeing the language used publicly on public signage, if you like, supports and encourages and complements that learning process and makes it more likely that that person will use the language socially growing up. So this is all about language planning. Secondly, and perhaps more importantly, for those that have no understanding of the language, maybe no history or background in the language, I mean, I've spoken to too many people from um, the unionist background who, who are now learning the language, and almost almost universally, they all say the thing that first got them interested was place names, was finding mm-hmm. out what their local place name meant, and unraveling this history before them that they'd never been aware of. So, you know, we think that this could be something that we really, really beneficial. I mean, but it is absolutely crazy the reaction, some of the reaction that engendered. I I was on, um, a, a popular, news. Mm-hmm program uh, whose name I'll, I'll, I'll try and not say um, some months ago talking about this and one of the callers um, phoned in and talked about the fact that he was from Glen Gormley and that if there was a saint erected in his town a bilingual saying is important again we're not talking about we're talking about party of esteem here so it isn't about replacing the English saints with Irish signs, it's about bilingual saints. and he said that if this were to happen in his town in Glen Gormley that he would go down personally himself and uh, cut the saint down now you know, I was trying to reason um, with this guy on the radio, and trying to explain to him that Glen Gormley means absolutely nothing, but Glen Gormley, where where Glen Gormley was translated from, has a meaning, which describes the place that he lives in, and would it not be good to try and understand that and engage with that? But what I what I would argue is that I think that the people with that attitude are the are very much the minority. I think knowledge is power. I think more people would like more knowledge and would like the opportunity to engage with the language in a very neutral way, in a very non confrontational way, in a way with their comfortable with in their own place, in their own town, in their own um, village or city or wherever they, wherever they may live. So they would be the core element, sorry, of the language act. Mm-hmm. and there would also be some practical things w- which would support the delivery of this. But Annie, any legislation that would fall short of those core elements, we would argue, would be would be fundamentally flawed, which is why um, the, when that draft agreement, which wasn't an agreement, which was an agreement, was published by Eamon Malley, uh, we were very sceptical um, and, and very concerned because we don't think that it dealt with either of the, those four um, kind of main elements in any real way which would have given us a good base to, to kind of develop from.
1: So. An official status really, really means that you be able to implement these things, such as signage, which really are um, ways of you know finding out your own cultural heritage, no matter where you're from. Um, but obviously, th- there's no such thing as a podcast here without touching upon Brexit. It's, it's yep. such a big issue. <laughs> um, and with that being said, um, are you worried that that Britain will withdraw all its commitments and it, it made under the European Charter, Charter for Regional or Minority Languages after Brexit? And of course you know, you could argue that they're more likely to do, this, to do this, given that they're being propped up by the DUP.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think, as kind of, in the broadest possible sense, what I think, what I'd be most concerned about with Brexit is the political currents that are driving it, which are leaning towards, kind of, populism, targeting minorities, and this kind of cultural event of intolerance, which is emerging post-Brexit. And even, you saw it, obviously, pre-Brexit. And, you know, I think... And in, the, in that type of era, it's even more important that progressives, you know, really kind of stand by their commitment to protect minorities. Because we have seen how our different minorities, immigrants and different things, particularly in, in, in Britain, have been scapegoated. Um, and given the, 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 the context of Brexit, that this is the reason why I voted Brexit, I wanted mm-hmm. to regain sovereignty, I wanted to control our borders, and all this type of hyperbolic language, which doesn't really reflect the current global world that we live in. And it is never going to be achievable. So in terms of, um, so that would be my main concern. It would be at that kind of conscious level of, of political thought and the currents that that's driven. Uh, practically, the Council of Europe treaties are outside of the EU. So they should be, uh, they will be still in place post-Brexit. They, they, you know, there, I think there's 47 members that have actually ratified um, the Council of Europe treaties. Theoretically, any country around the world can. So, if Canada wanted to tomorrow, this is something that extends well beyond the EU's borders. So, those treaties would still would still be in place. But to be perfectly honest with you, the European Charter has never been implemented in any meaningful way. Mm-hmm. And we, we, I just uh, only last month, or um, at the beginning of May, um, there was a delegation over from the Committee of Experts, which oversees implementation of the European Charter, and they met with various NGOs about this. And, you know, they, what they'll do is they, they, they'll get a report from the state body and they will pass and then they will fit, give their findings. And, you know, I can almost tell you what those findings will be because they were seen the last time and they were seen the time before that. There will be very strong criticism of the lack of implementation, of the lack of basic services, of the lack of rates for particularly Irish speakers here. And I think the way the Council of Europe do this is they, they look at the entire jurisdiction. So they visit Wales. And they juxtapose that with what is taking place here, and they see a clear, very clear anomaly. Um, so we we will get that report; that, that will be in place, and it will be ignored, and we will go on. And you know, I think that's important because we have. People, um, particularly the Ulster Unionist Party, who we have met with um, quite a few times, who were who who would describe themselves as architects of the Good Friday Agreement, or one of the architects of the Good Friday Agreement, and what they would argue in their opposition to an Irish Language Act is that currently provisions exist as a result of the Good Friday Agreement that provide adequate protection for the Irish language, and what they often cite is the European Charter. However, what they fail to mention is that those actually tasked with overseeing implementation have every time con- con- condemned them for their lack of implementation. And as we know through the courts, it isn't, implement- it isn't implemented or applicable in domestic law. So it's a good template. It's a good sounding board. It's a good, this is what we should do. But when it comes down to actually is it enforceable, then clearly it's not. So we were concerned about that. Also, in terms of Brexit, um, I think we have a very strong... Vibrant um, Irish-speaking, uh, Irish-language community sector here, whose capacity is really developing on a, on a daily basis, and we're seeing that. We're seeing that in, in the transformational work that's taking place, particularly in some of our deprived communities here. And over the past number of years, those groups, some of those groups, have been beginning beginning to access European funds to develop projects with other minorities-language communities across Europe. All that's going to be cut off. So we have austerity. We have slices and, and, and deep cuts to public um, funding. And then one of the other paths that could have mitigated against some of that is also being removed. Mm-hmm. So I think there are enormous concerns Are We have been engaging with the Brexit Steering Committee um, in the EU. We've also been um, in constant contact with all of our MEPs here. And we wrote to Michel Barnier. Um, he responded um, a couple of weeks ago um, to us, personally wrote a letter back to state that um, in the draft a withdrawal agreement, that there is provisions already to ensure that um, the Good Friday Agreement and, importantly, um, for us anyway, he, he stated this very clearly in his letter, that the Good Friday Agreement and the Saint Andrews Agreement would be implemented fully, as are in 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 the case of a Brexit, um, in the case of the draft withdrawal agreement, mm-hmm. and I think that those provisions are already place. So we haven't actually made that public. That's a wee bit of a, a, a scoop for you there in the in the right. uh, law pod. So I think long long story short I think there are a number of concerns at different levels there politically socially mm-hmm. and also in terms of some of those funding uh, implementa- uh, implications as well which, which would be a huge concern to a lot of people
1: yeah there's also been you know huge concerns on it on the opposition side as well, you mentioned um, the discrimination of minorities, but, um, you know, we've had people come forward saying that this is actually discrimination uh, or discriminating against people who don't speak Irish. Is what, What's the truth in that? Is there any truth in it? Is there discrimination there? And does that undermine any legal status, yeah. which, which, which we do have for the Irish language?
0: Well, you know, the one thing I like about rights and human rights is that you can't make them up. And we have... Very clear rights would say, um, be it from UN treaties um, to EU or Council of Europe treaties, um, which say people have a right to, for instance, see the native minority language of their land on saints. That's clear, codified in international law since the 90s. We have that in place. There is no right to say you have a right to be offended at having to look at a minority language on the same. that right doesn't exist and you cannot make it up. So I think... There is no equivalence between those that are arguing that their rights would be adversely impacted by having to look at a minority language on a sign, because that's blatantly not true. There is no obligation on anyone to learn Irish as a result of an Irish Language Act. There will be no obligation on people to leave employment. There will be no obligation on people to, if you're a small business owner, to suddenly change all your signs bilingually. I think it's important that we counter some of those myths and that fake news mm-hmm. that exists. I was astounded in February um, as the agreement that wasn't an agreement that was an agreement started to break down, when Arlene Foster gave an interview and said that she couldn't agree to anyone that, anything that's forced people to learn Irish. That had never been on the table. We had met with the DUP. We had explained in very detailed communications with them what our provisions outlined. As far as I'm aware, no... Irish speaker, no political party have ever recommended that anyone would be forced to learn Irish. Yet Arlene Foster was going on to public TV to say nobody will be forced, as if she prevented this from taking place. Mm-hmm. So that was never in the case. Again, they refer to a talk show. I was also on another time and somebody says, well, if this Irish language act comes about, my, I've told my daughter she'll have to ever immigrant because she'll not be able to get a job here because she doesn't speak Irish. And you were going, like, is this For real, where are we living here? I mean, the absence of real information is frightening. And, you know, to go back to your early point about Brexit, you can see that similar type of where people can fire out these crazy suggestions and suddenly they enter the mainstream and suddenly people are digesting them and internalizing them and believing that they're real and basing their opinions on this fake Mm -hmm. news and on these myths. So it's very difficult to have a very reasoned debate about what are, if you look at them, modest proposals. What we have said, given the the kind of... the heat around the debate over the last 18 months, Emma, what we have said is, if we ever get the Irish Language Act, people will be blown away by how little impact it has on their daily lives. Because you would imagine, you know, with all the debate that's taken place, that suddenly, you know, people think there's going to be kind of night and day's turnaround, that overnight... We're going to be living in some bilingual utopia or dystopia, depending on your perspective. But the opposite's true. For those who speak Irish, it will make a big difference. For those who don't and have no willingness to engage with the language, it'll make very little difference, if any. And in the, for the group in the middle that don't really have much, but maybe we want to learn more, it will provide them with a comfortable space with which to do so. So, you know... I think it's very difficult. We have, we have tried to do it. We, we, we kind of were very effective on social media and stuff. So we, we've made a number of very short myth-busting videos and stuff around some of this um, and trying to get our narrative out. I think one of the things that's been most important and successful about the Dram Diary campaign, which has kind of forced us to the centre of the political discourse, has been the fact that we've been able to wrestle control of an narrative away from, from politicians and to place it in the community. So the community become an advocate for themselves as opposed to abdicating that responsibility to political representatives. That's the way democracy is meant to work. We've outlined our case, we've agitated Within democratic uh, norms, you know, we've we've held street protests, we've contacted politicians, we've went out, we've organised public meetings, public discussions mm-hmm. around this, and we've done that very, very effectively and very successfully, which has resulted in, for the first time, we have now have a majority of MLAs in the election in, t- in March two thousand seventeen, is for the first time since the f- state was founded, which was actually support an Irish language act. Mm-hmm. Fifty out of ninety MLAs support this. Five of our parties support this. So. That has been that has been a result and you mentioned at the very beginning of the programme the, the, the idea around a red lane and stuff. That is a result of a political uh, or sorry, of a of a community led campaign, not the result of some political party arbitrarily deciding to suddenly initiate a red line. I was on I was in TV studios in February asking Representative Symphian, will you make a red line issue of this? You have to? And I'm saying, No we don't have red lines. And then as the campaign grew and developed and developed, They've made it a red line and other parties come on board. So I think I think that's uplifting for everyone. I think, you mm-hmm. know, when you have an organized community, when you have people that are out asserting their rights, when you have people that are mobilized and campaigning and organized and doing this in a very open, inclusive way, then you can't affect change. And this idea that that our only input and how our lives are run is going to the ballot box every four or five years and putting an axe in a box, you know, surely we can get more than that. Surely we can have a better say. And the way in which you do that, as we know throughout centuries across the world, is by organising, is by campaigning, is by going out on the streets and making your case. And we have done that very successfully. And we are very proud of the fact that the Irish Language Act has been made a red line, that it's very centre of the political discourse, because we have spent years in the margins. Years where nobody wanted to deal with this issue. And it was only when we became organised that suddenly people started to take it seriously.
1: Just as a final question then, how can people get involved in what Conor Nagelig is doing and what Andram Jarig is doing? You know, maybe if they're not from, uh, you know a side of the community that really advocates for this but they want to be involved what's the easiest option what's what what should they do well
0: uh, we we seek and have sought support from absolutely everybody and i've been kind of i've been blown away personally by the the the, the mixed back background of of a lot of people that that are contacting us and supporting us not only not only here but but around the world i mean it's it's truly frightening and i think um you know social media particularly recently with the whole Facebook controversy and stuff gets a lot of flack but there is enormous benefits to it in terms of organising a campaign from below and very simply um, when we launched the Dram um page on Facebook and on Twitter and stuff which is a, a platform which people can interface with to support our campaign what we said very clearly was I am in Dram you are in Dram anyone who believes in rights for the Irish speaking community is in Dram so anyone can literally get involved if they agree with our campaign follow our pages, like, share our stuff at the very basic level, and then there'll be information about meetings we're organising, protests we're Mm organising, they can come along. This is something that is entirely democratic, it's open and accessible to all. What we say when we come to our meetings is that every other issue that we have, because there are enough issues that separate us, you're not going to get 50 people in a room without there being 300 issues, which probably will come between them. So what we say is, listen, for, for the next hour or two hours of this meeting, when we're organising we'll leave all those other issues at the door this is the one issue in, it, in us. we're all for protection for the Irish language so we can come together and we can use whatever skills we have if somebody's good in social media if somebody's good at reading, rating somebody's good at designing posters it doesn't matter and how little time you have how much time you have whatever your skill is there will be a road for you so please engage with our pages contact us and there'll be no shortage of, of, of tasks.
1: <laughs> I'm sure. All right, I Magid here and Kirsty Chuck. Thanks girl for Margaret. coming, and and um, we really appreciate your input here. And we really appreciate that you took your time out to come down to Queens and you know to, to, to host an event, um, showing everyone what the what the legal uh, status is and and why this should be implemented. Um, it's my so pleasure.
0: It's, it's been very very enjoyable, and uh, for my service in, in jabber Well done for the good work. It's. it's been Incredible that these facilities are available and allow you to put yeah. pods uh, podcasts out like this. So, myself,
1: You have been listening to Law Pod, an informed take on current events brought to you by the law students and staff at Queen's University Belfast. This episode was produced by Richard Somerville and Emma McMillan. Our theme music is by Colonel Chocolate and the Justice Triangle. Law Pod is funded by Queen's Law School and the Queen's Annual Fund. Thanks to Kieran Van. You can follow us on social media. We are on Twitter at QUB LawPod. For more information, you can also visit our website, lawpod.org, and please have a look in the show notes for more information about the topics covered today. You can find us on iTunes or anywhere else you get your podcasts.
0: Thanks for listening. I'm Emily McMillan. This was LawPod.